Hello and welcome to the Irish Tennis Updates podcast. My name's Adam, your host. It's been a while since I've had an episode out. Things have been super busy recently, but I'm delighted to have this episode out today. Ever since I've started doing this podcast, I've known that one person I absolutely had to get on the show at some point was James McGee, and I'm delighted that today is finally the day for that. James is a legend of Irish tennis, and he's one of our most successful players over the last 10 to 15 years. James reached top 150 in the ATP rankings. He won an ATP Challenger title in 2016. In 2014, he qualified for the US Open main draw. And over the course of James's career, he played several Davis Cup ties and won some really big matches for Ireland. These days, James is working with the Inspiring Children Foundation based out in Las Vegas. He's been there for the last few years and he's doing some really amazing things out there. And I I really enjoyed hearing about what James is up to more recently as well. Throughout the episode, we hear some stories from James's tennis career. His recollection of of matches and dates and opponents is is incredible. And and it's great to hear about his thoughts and and get get into his mindset and some of those big moments from his career that that I mentioned. I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode. So let's get into it. Here is James McGee. James, thanks very much for coming on the show. Uh, how are things with you? Great, Adam. I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me. We've been trying to make this happen now for almost a year, I'd say. And <laughs> just before we went live, like I was telling you how what I admire about you is how persistent you are, because every few months I would get a message from you. We've never obviously met in person. And you just said, hey, does this weekend work? Does this day work? Does this time work? And for whatever reason, it it didn't work. But because you persisted, we finally found a day to actually have this conversation. So uh, I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to chatting with you and and, uh, sharing my experience and learning more about you at the same time. Great stuff. Yeah, no, I'm 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 glad to to finally be chatting, James. It's uh, it's 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 great for me. Um, so I just want to ask, firstly, if you could have any superpower in the world, what superpower would you choose? Wow, what a start! Probably uh, not what you're no, not at all. I thought we were going to go straight into tennis results or something like that. If I could have any superpower in the world, I guess if I could fly, I think I'd like to be able to fly, or if I could teleport somewhere, uh, I think that that would be pretty cool. The other one was to be invisible, which would be kind of cool. But I don't know. The first one for me is to be able to fly. I think I, I would choose that just to have a to to be able to do that would be pretty cool. Probably a good choice. Good choice. Um, and just to hop in, I know at the moment you you're living in Las Vegas. You're you're kind of working sort of in tennis. I know you were saying there. Um, so just get, maybe you could give a little bit of idea. I know you're obviously working with with charity a lot. So what what's kind of your your story at the moment and kind of how how's life the last couple of years? Yeah, there's a lot of things that have changed. So um, for those that um, may have followed my tennis career, I I ended it. My last professional tennis match was in the U.S. Open of 2017, uh, where I had to pull out uh, with a back injury. And obviously, a lot has changed since in the last five years. The first year in 2018, I was a little bit lost. I didn't know what I was doing in in my life. I didn't know whether I was going to return to professional tennis if I was going to stay in Ireland, if I was going to coach, if I was going to go back to school, there were so many different options and so many different things happening at that stage in my life. But to 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 make a long story short, I ended up moving out to Las Vegas in October of 2018. So it's been pretty much exactly four years now at this stage. 
And I now work for a nonprofit youth foundation out here. It's called the Inspiring Children Foundation. And within the foundation, we have many different programs, um, one of which is tennis. Um, so I direct the tennis program, or at least I have directed the tennis program for the last three years uh, or four years, which has been uh, sponsored by Bob and Mike Bryan, the obviously the top uh, winningest doubles team of all time. But within the organization, uh, we also have a mental health program. We also have an entrepreneurship program. Uh, we have transitional homes uh, and we have project driven learning. So there's there's really a lot. And I could spend a long time talking about the organization and what we do. But to, to put it to break it down and to keep it as simple as possible, what we try to do is we help kids turn their lives around and transform their lives through a whole human approach to education, which is physical, mental and emotional health. So it's a very in-depth program. And I became part of it because back in 2006, my, my roommate in college, his name was Freddie. Um, he was the first kid to graduate and to come through the foundation program. And so I learned about it 16 years ago. I learned that, um, you know, th this program turned a lot of kids' lives around and, and kids that were in very, very difficult circumstances. And over the last 20 years, we've had 180 kids uh, all graduate from the program and go onwards to get a full scholarship, uh, college scholarship to some of the best universities in the world. So um, that's trying to keep it as 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 uh, clear as possible. I probably didn't do a good job with that, but um, I'm very happy that I'm living out here. I'm very happy that I'm still involved in tennis. Uh, but more importantly, I'm 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 more interested in the human side of things. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Um, so I guess so. How how did that? I know you might have mentioned how you were aware of the the organization, but how did you then? get involved with us a few years ago yeah so um when i was going through that difficult uh career change or transition stage and a lot of athletes have talked about this like when you retire from your sport um so many people talk about a loss of identity and and people going through depression and very difficult times and trying to figure out like you know what's next in your life when you've just spent your entire life training for something and then all of a sudden it, it just ends and so that was also this similar for me. I had a very difficult year in 2018. But what happened was I was living in Atlanta at the time. Uh, that's where I used to train, by the way, when I was on the tour. And I was coaching in some parks. I was coaching in a local club. And I realized, OK, like, you know, like I can do the coaching for the time being. It's going to help pay the bills. But I always felt there was more to it. You know, I didn't want to just focus on the tennis side of things. I also wanted to focus on on the human side of things. And, and I wanted to learn more about business and things of that nature. And so I ended up reaching out to a guy named Ryan Wolfington. Um, Ryan Wolfington is the is the man who, who founded the organization 20, 21 years ago. And we had been friends on Facebook and Instagram, and he would put up videos showing the foundation and what the foundation did and how these kids were, were getting these college scholarships and doing all these great things. And <laughs> but um, what ended up happening was I reached out to Ryan and I said to him, you know, I just wanted to have a talk about life because I wanted to talk to someone who I felt I admired and I respected and I felt they were doing good things in their life. And so I ended up um, talking to him and he offered me a, a, a job to come to Las Vegas. I had no intention whatsoever to move to Las Vegas. It was the last place on earth I wanted to live. In fact, I played the challenger here twice in 2015 and 2016. And when I flew out in 2016 and I was flying over the strip, I specifically remember looking outside the window and saying, I will never return to this city ever again because I hated that that much because I had a bad experience at that time. 
And lo and behold, I, I came back in 2018 and I've, I've lived here for the last four years and I'm very, very happy here. So it's just funny how life, how life goes. You don't really expect it to go that way, but you got to trust life, you know? Yeah, that's that is funny. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just tell me, so on a kind of day to day basis now, these days, I know obviously tennis is, is a part of it or how, how, how are your days looking and yeah. overall? Yeah. Yeah, so so the, the the structure that we have at the organization, our kids are basically with us from eight in the morning until six in the evening, six days a week, Monday to Saturday. Usually, I'll just break down the program um, real quick, and then you, I'll explain how how my life is with that. But we do um, tennis and physical training and yoga and mental training um, from eight to twelve, Monday to Friday. So. That's, you know, everything from high performance tennis to drills to match play to, um, you know, learning how to scout and to understand tactics and the mental side of the game. And then in the afternoons, uh, our kids end up going to our foundation office, which is five minutes walk from the tennis courts. And that's where they do their schoolwork um, because they're all part of a homeschool program where they can do their schoolwork in the office. And they do that, you know, five days a week and then typically on the Saturday is we dedicate time to, we call it Super Saturday, and we dedicate time to not just playing tennis, um, but uh, doing more projects, doing more fun social activities, keeping up, having a positive social life. And so where I fit into this whole um, picture and this whole jigsaw is I coach Monday to Friday, sometimes Monday to Thursday. Um, I have private lessons in the morning along with group lessons. And then in the afternoon, I go to the foundation office and Initially, I was working on um, different things with our tennis program, like, you know, um, rosters and, and doing grants and things of that nature. And now I'm actually moving into fundraising and development. So I'm reaching out to different donors. There's a lot of donor relations. There's a lot of opportunities with partnerships, with different organizations, with different people in Las Vegas. And uh, that's really a never ending job. There's so much going on there because you're always trying to raise money to keep the lights on and do that that type of thing. And I also attend a lot of events. Uh, obviously, Vegas is the is the hub of entertainment in the whole world. So we have we have a big event pretty much on every every night of the week. And I'm not going out every night of the week, but I'm, I'm going to different events, different gala, galas, different foundation events. And just this week, I was at two events. So there's really a lot going on. Uh, my life is packed with 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 work, but more importantly for me, it's it's meaningful work, and I enjoy it, and I I feel like I have a sense of purpose in what I'm doing, and that that's really important to me. Yeah, no, great. It really sounds amazing, um, and I could definitely James could talk a lot more about about that, but I I'm conscious of getting on to to some tennis as well, and some, yeah, some, for some, sure. some of some of your kind of tennis uh, journey a bit. So I guess just to jump in at the start, how did tennis start for you and, and how were those early early days in tennis for you yeah my mom got me into tennis uh when i was younger i was uh, i was big sports sports um fan my whole life like i played gaelic football i played hurling um i played a lot of foot like regular football a uh, bit of rugby i went to belvedere college i did a bit of rugby there but i think when i was probably I would say 11 years old, 11, 12 years old. That's when I started taking tennis a little bit more seriously. I initially got into the sport through my mom who, who grew up in Monaghan and she was a, she was a badminton player, eventually started playing tennis and eventually started coaching tennis. Once she, once she saw that I had such a passion for the game and I grew up uh, obviously in Castleknock and uh, would go down to Castleknock lawn tennis club pretty much every day. 
And as my love for the sport grew and as I played diff- played different tournaments and local club championships, I just couldn't get enough of it. I was I was obsessed. And I've, I've found very few people in my life that loved it as much as I did and were willing to work as hard. Obviously, there are there are people that that work hard and love the sport. But I absolutely loved it. I, I, I ate, slept and, and dreamt about tennis like 24 seven. And then as I started playing more and, and, and learning more about the game, I eventually, at 13 years of age, I met a guy named Larry Jurovich, um, who is a Canadian tennis coach who, who moved over to Ireland. And Larry became my full-time coach. Um, we used to train at Westwood Fairview. I'm not sure if you know this whole story, but there was myself, there was James Kluski, Darren McLaughlin, Paul Foley, Rory Green, Dara Rowan. There was like a bunch of us that were um, training in Westwood at the time. And it was a great group of, of lads. And what what would happen is we would train before school, we'd train after school. And that's how my, I guess that's how I grew as a tennis player and, and eventually went on to to play college tennis and then pro tennis. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely do know some of that story. I've, I've actually spoken to Larry on, on the podcast before. Oh, so, amazing. So if, if anyone hasn't heard that, maybe check it out to hear a bit more about, about his, his work. But uh, just, yeah. just obviously you got more into the, you got, you, got, you got more serious, you were training more. So in terms of those, those kind of junior days in Ireland and competing, how, what are your kind of memories of, of it getting more serious in Ireland and, and playing yeah. tennis? And, yeah. I don't remember. Um, so I remember, you know, I remember it, under 12 i remember losing the semi-finals of fitzwilliam to tristan farnman i'm not sure if you've interviewed tristan tristan would be a great guy to interview yeah, 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 yeah. um and and he's been a great friend of mine for years now but i definitely wasn't the best in ireland under 12 um i feel like it was it was tristan and paul morrissey who were really the best players at the time and um i i wanted to be the best but i wasn't the best and then as I got a little bit older, around 13, 14, I started to do a little bit better, started to win a little bit more, lost in the final of fits under 14 to Warren Atkins, which still hurts me to this day. I remember I had beaten Warren so many times, like in junior tennis and the interpros and all these different events throughout the years. And then when it came to the final of fits, he ended up beating me, I think it was like five in the third or four in the third. And I remember just being devastated after it because I wasn't expected, at least in my own mind, I wasn't expected to lose. And so it's so funny what a loss can do because you can either, it can either crush you and you can give up or you can actually see it as, as, as fuel and use it as fuel to make you better. And I remember after that loss, like I found it hard to even uh, go to the ceremony, the, the prize giving ceremony afterwards, because I was just so devastated. And I remember the next year I absolutely put the put the foot down in terms of my training and in terms of my focus and the next year I ended up winning fits uh when I was under I was under 15 I won the under 16s I beat a guy Michael Lynch in the final uh which was a a good I guess a good win at the time and then the next year uh I don't know what happened the next year but the following year when I was under 17 I ended up losing in the final of fits to James Kluski five in the third devastating loss but Kluski played amazing uh that particular day um just he was absolutely on fire um and then that was really my junior tennis career i mean i did play itfs i won a few itfs in ireland i'd have to go back online and look up the the tournaments that i played and and won and then i started doing well around 17 years of age 16 17 
that's when I really started to push on because I obviously physically got a little bit stronger, mentally got stronger. And then I was, I was starting to like push some really top players. I remember playing Peter Clark one year in the final of uh, Donnybrook. Donnybrook closed, I think at the time. And I lost like a tight match and he had been a professional tennis player. And so when these results started happening and I started winning and playing these type of matches, it kind of gave me a sense of, you know, hey, maybe I could play pro one day. Maybe I could play these bigger tournaments. Like I'm starting to see that I can actually do it and it's not just a, a dream, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I guess at that stage, I suppose college maybe starts entering your mind. And I know nowadays that's something that's a lot more maybe common for, for Irish players to to be thinking about as a, as a next option. But but for you, um, how did college figure and how did you kind of make make a decision in, in terms of US college? Yeah, yeah. Um... So what ended up happening was, I think it was 2004, 2005. So it was end of 2004. And I really have to go back, obviously, now. This is this is 18 years ago. I'm feeling so old right now. But 18 years ago, um, I was approached by a couple of sponsors in Ireland. And they said, hey, we." and by the way, keep in mind that 2004 was when there was a lot of money going around in Ireland because it was right before the recession. And they said, um, hey, we see you're doing really well. Like, we, we believe in you. You've got an, an awful lot of potential. You could do big things in the sport. We'd like to pay for your training, um, but you're going to have to leave Ireland and go to Barcelona because that's where the best players in the world are. That's where Andy Murray is. That's where all the top Spaniards are, are training. That's the hub of professional tennis around the world. Would you be willing to do that? And obviously, it's a big deal in Ireland when you leave school and you don't do your leaving cert. And it's it's pretty much frowned upon for the most part. You know, it's it's I wouldn't say it's encouraged. And and I had a conversation with my parents. My mom was was more like, yeah, let's do it. My dad was definitely not. He was more like stay in school, finish your finish your um, finish secondary school and then kind of take it from there. But I was very much gung ho on on turning pro. I was 100 percent um focus on it which by the way uh, now that i'm older and and hindsight's a beautiful thing you see the mistakes that, that and you can see the errors and the pitfalls that 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 i had at the time and i i, I now see it in other 17 and 18 year olds where they want to turn pro and they don't have any understanding of college tennis and what it can actually do for them and so what ended up happening to me is i left school in ireland moved to barcelona so this was early 2005 and obviously, when I got there, I was locked into training hard. I was totally disciplined, totally focused, totally like, you know, I was I was able to live on my own as a 16, 17 year old. It wasn't like I was going out and drinking and doing stupid stuff like that. I wasn't I really wasn't interested in it. And what ended up happening was I overtrained when I got to this uh, federation I was part of. It's called the Catalan Federation. And I ended up overtraining, not having the right nutrition, not getting enough sleep, rest and recovery. And long story short, I ended up um, breaking a bone in my hand. Um, There's a bone in the hand called the hook of the hammock bone. And okay. long story short, it ended up, I thought it was going to be a stress fracture for maybe, I, I would have been out for a month or two months or maximum three months. It ended up where I was out for one year, one and a half years. Uh, didn't, wow. didn't lift a tennis racket. Didn't, couldn't lift a tennis racket. I, just by lifting a glass of water, it would, would, would bring pain to my hands. So I ended up going to the gym a lot. I ended up doing a lot of running. I ended up really working hard on my physical um, and mental fitness. And so because of that, because I didn't have any tennis results, because I hadn't played in a year and a half, none of the top schools in America would, would give me a full scholarship. Because 
why would they? Why would they give a full scholarship to someone who hasn't played tennis in a year and a half? It makes no sense. And so I was scrambling for schools. I was questioning whether I should return to Ireland and just go to college in Ireland and kind of give up my dream of being a professional tennis player. What should I do there? It was a very stressful time in my life. I didn't really know what to do. And so my friend, Connor Taylor, uh, I'm not sure if you know Connor, um, but I could, by the way, you should get him on the podcast at some stage. He's, he's a great guy, great person now living in Philadelphia. And Connor's like my best friend. We've known each other since um, I've been about 14 years of age. He's an amazing person. He ended up going to North Carolina State University. And because he went there and he had a good relationship with the coach, he talked to the coach and he said, hey, this guy, James McGee, even though he hasn't played tennis in a year and a half, he's worth having on your team. Give him a shot. You know, you're not going to regret it. And yeah. thankfully, my coach at the time, uh, John Chobo is his name. Thankfully, he um, he ended up giving me, which was close to a full scholarship for my to come to North Carolina State University. And that's where I, I ended up coming to America and spending two years there. So, yeah, that's been. Yeah, I you know it's fascinating. It really is. Um, and and so you were then in college. Just tell me maybe a little bit about about those couple of years and how you found the the college tennis tennis experience compared to other tennis experiences you'd you'd had so far. Absolutely. So I got there in August two thousand six, and I ended up. And by the way, yeah, I don't know how I remember dates. My friends always make fun of me when when it comes to dates. I'm I'm very good at remembering where I was on a particular date. Like if you were asked where I was and. February 2004, I'll probably know where I was. It's weird. Um, so in August 2006, um, I ended up arriving to North Carolina, a place called Raleigh. And I, because I'd been injured for a year and a half, I was just still getting back into the flow of my training and things like that. And it was funny because my roommate at the time, which I, I mentioned earlier how I got involved in the, in the foundation, but my roommate was this guy, Freddie from Las Vegas. And he used to tell me stories every every night of his life in Las Vegas and, and what, what, what it was like for him. So that's where I learned more about the foundation. But from my personal tennis experience, um, the first year was really just finding my feet, getting used to the different conditions. I hadn't played a whole amount, a huge amount in the humidity and the heat. I was still getting used to a team atmosphere. I was still getting used to the college coaches. I was still getting used to the schedule. And so the first year was actually my first spring season was brutal. I, I had a bunch of injuries. I hurt my back. I twisted my ankle. I hurt my knee. I hurt my hip. I struggled in school. I had a relationship where I broke up with a girl and it just caused me a whole lot of stress. I had all these experiences and I really didn't know how to handle it. I didn't have the tools to calm my mind down. I didn't feel like I had the community to really share what was truly going on within me. And it was really a horrible experience. I, I won some matches and I played, I think it was two or three for the team that year. But I, I personally struggled myself and it had nothing really to do with my team. It had nothing to do with anything like that. It was more to do with my, my own experience. So what I ended up doing is I took the fall of 2007 off because I wanted to focus on my tennis. I wanted to focus on um, playing professional events. I wanted to really get my head straight. I wanted to get my body right. And it was a great decision because I used that time to play futures around Europe. I remember traveling with Peter Clark and James Kluski to futures in Armenia and Georgia and different parts of Eastern Europe. And I came back to North Carolina in January of 2008, having not been there for about seven months. And I came back and had a great season. I ended up top 50 in the, in the country, ended up... Um, 
the, you know, we had made the quarterfinals of the NCAAs. I ended up playing number one for the team. I ended up doing better in school. Like all these things started to happen. And really I credit it to number one maturity. Like I had, I was just older and a little bit more mature. I had more experience. I had better guidance. And then the fourth thing was I started taking much better care of my body. Like I started stretching more. I started doing a little bit of yoga. I started getting in the pool to really uh, take care of my body. And and you probably see it yourself, Adam, like and talking to different tennis players, like taking care of the body is absolutely critical because we, we see how many players get injured and end up ha- cutting their career short because of injury. It pretty much happens to everyone. So that that's a little bit of, of that part of my story. Yeah, no, brilliant. And maybe that's something we could talk a little bit about later of caring for, for the body, the mind and kind of uh, how they're connected. But but maybe just to continue with, with the story, uh, your kind of journey a little bit. So you come maybe to the end of your, your college time and I suppose having had those experiences traveling to some futures, I guess at that stage, maybe you were pretty set on on the journey of, of going pro. So, so maybe you could tell me a little bit about the early times of, of kind of going, I guess, going pro, going, going full time and, and how 100%. that transition was. Yeah, it was actually it was it was it was interesting because in May of 2008, I was starting to think about transferring schools because I, I the school that I was part of, NC State, it was good, but it, it wouldn't have been a top 10 school, it wouldn't have been top five in the country. And I knew that if I wanted to be a top pro and do great things, I, I needed to be around the best. I had to be around the best players. I, I had to be around a great environments and things like that. And so I started looking at transferring uh, to go to a different school. And again, this is nothing against NC State. It was more against what was, it was more to do with what was right for um, my tennis career. And during that experience of looking to transfer and, and all that, I ended up getting approached by two sponsors in Ireland. Again, the same, the same people who supported me back in 2004, 2005. And they said, hey, you know, we'd like to support you to go on the tour. You're doing decent in college. Would you be willing to um, to leave college and actually play on the tour? And for me at the time, it kind of felt like a lottery ticket. It kind of felt like one of the best things and to happen because I really needed that kind of opportunity. And so I ended up making the decision. Um, I ended up going down to Venezuela to play my first professional events. I had some points, but I, I needed to get more points. So I went down to Venezuela with my friend Carl Falsey, who, by the way, you should interview for this podcast. Um, and when I was in Venezuela, I got the phone call from from the sponsors and they said, hey, we'd like to support you. We'd like to uh, help you, you know, turn pro and we'll help you financially. And, and again, I was I was so pumped at this whole thing that I I ended up getting some points in Venezuela, um, had a couple of rough experiences there. Um, because Venezuela is a pretty dangerous country. And so after I came back from Venezuela, I ended up playing a bunch of futures. I, I played some futures in Greece. I played some futures in Czech Republic, in Italy, um, made quarterfinals of a challenger in uh, in Slovenia. This is in September 2008. And so I started doing pretty well pretty quickly because I was excited to be on the tour. I, I, had, I, had, the, I had the support to do it. And I got to about 500 in the world within a, within a six month period, which is pretty good. It's pretty good to get up to about 500 in, in that period of time. Um, and in early 2009, at about five six hundred in the world, I get a phone call from my sponsors, the same sponsors, and they said, you know, all, all that money that we had kind of promised you and and wanted to support you on for the next two years, we don't have it. Um, this is during the recession at the time. Everyone was losing their money. There was absolutely no money around. 
And so I was five, 600 in the world with no money in my bank account, but I had all the desire in the world to be a great tennis player, but I had no financial support at that stage. So it's, that's when it started to get really tricky. And, and I guess obviously the financial side is something we, we hear a lot about. And, you know, at that, st- that stage of a tennis career of, of the big difficulties that does, does bring. And, and, and maybe again, that's something we could touch on a little bit later. But um, what I want to do is, is just mention a few kind of ex- experiences of, of your career and kind of hear a little bit about your, your reaction to them or your kind of memories of them. Um, yeah. So the, the first one would, would be the Irish Open uh, Futures. So I know you won that, I, I think, 2011. Correct, um, yeah. Okay, so, so just tell me a bit about, obviously, that, that's a, a pretty cool, cool thing, deal to, to, to win the, the home event. So tell me a bit about, about that week for you. Yeah, I think it was my, I'm trying to recall, but I think it was my first Futures win. I had made final of a bunch of Futures before, but I think it was my first Futures win. It was definitely my first $15,000 uh, tournament win. And, you know, again, this is 11 years ago. And I remember... You know, it was very exciting to have the Irish Open. It was on in fits. It was all on the artificial grass courts. So, you know, as Irish tennis players, we felt we had an advantage there over other players because we were more obviously used to the surface. And I, I, I won. I remember my, I, I had made semis maybe the year before or quarters the year before, and I lost to a, a German guy, um, Martin Emmerich. And I remember in 2011, I felt. I, I felt I could win the tournament. I felt like, hey, like if I really put this together, I could win the tournament, but I'm going to have to really play great and I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to really commit to my game. And it's funny, like 11 years later, I, I, there was one word that I told myself in the, in the tournament um, and I, one word that I would commit to um, throughout each match. And the word was, or, or the term was be decisive. I just said, be decisive. Whatever you do, make sure you're decisive. Because for me, and for a lot of players, what 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 holds people back is when you hesitate. What holds people back is when you think twice about what you're going to do. And everyone, you know, everyone plays their best when they're a little bit decisive. So when they are decisive. So I ended up uh, beating a guy named Miloslav Misir or Michir in the semifinals. I saved match points in that match, I think, with a serve and volley. And I won 7-6 in the third. It was a great win. And I ended up beating this guy, Charles Antoine Brizac in the final, 6-3, 6-3. And it was a great win. It was a great win at the time. It was um, We had a good crowd in Fitzwilliam. Um, I actually put up a photo not too long ago of, of the moment that I won. I put it up on my Instagram of the moment that I won it, where I jumped up in the air and I was wearing all green. And yeah, it was just a cool moment for me. And and it was, a, it was exciting, I guess, at the time. But in the big scheme of things, it wasn't really a big deal because, it, you know, it's a futures. It's good, but it's not like I won an ATP event. So I just kind of learned, learned from it and tried to keep the momentum going. So, so the next one, James, I, I had in mind was, I guess you're talking about futures there. So moving on to, to challengers a bit, maybe you know, the, the next kind of stage of, of your career and challenger finals. So before we, we touch on the one that, that you won, um, I know that there were a couple of losses that you had in, in finals before. So how, yes. how how kind of tough were those losses or how much did you take from them and what memories do you have of, of kind of getting close in the challenger mark but not, not but not quite being there yeah i'm i'm uh i'm trying to remember i might need you to help me with recalling some of the tournaments but i know for me um so the big thing in tennis like you know you want to get out of futures as soon as you can so you're in challengers and then you're in atps and you're in grand slams like that's really the goal right you want to be obviously the goal is to be at the highest level but you want to get out of the futures kind of as soon as possible and and 
typically to get into an, uh, a Grand Slam qualifying event, typically you have to be top 240 or top 250 in the world, usually 240. Sometimes it's even 230, but usually if you're top 240 in the world, you're going to you're gonna be in the qualifying of a, of a Grand Slam. And I remember in 2012, 2013, maybe early 2013, I started playing some challengers in Korea. And I remember beating a guy named Rick DeVost, who's a South African player. He had won ATP doubles events. He was a top 100 singles player, amazing player, very smart around the court. And I remember making, I think it was the quarterfinals, maybe it was the semifinals of a challenger in Seoul, Korea. And I, I beat another guy, Denai Udomchoke, in that. And because I'd made quarters or semis that week, it 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 bumped my ranking up to be 245 in the world or whatever it was, or 248, I can't remember. And because of that, I ended up getting into Wimbledon qualifying that year. And that for me was a huge achievement to get into the qualities of Wimbledon of 2013, because even though I, I didn't do well, I lost first round easy to a guy named Paul Capdeville from Chile. It was really big deal for me to be there, you know, because I that's what I'd wanted this whole time. I wanted to be in the mix. I wanted to be around the best players in the world. And the only way to get there was through challengers, you know, was was getting doing well in challengers consistently. So I'm going to have to rely on you to to remind me of some of my challenger results because I don't remember them all. But in terms of challenger finals, I remember losing to Heon Chung one year um, in the final of a challenger in Savannah. I think it was 2015. I lost in the final of a challenger in San Luis Potosí to Guido Pella. Um, I had beaten Guido Pella. I beat him in a in the Roland Garros 2014. So that was a tough loss, but I did have some good wins that week. I beat Zoomer. I beat Carlos Burlock. I beat a few others. Um, and maybe I lost in the final of another challenger. I, I don't really, really remember, but it wasn't until 2016 that I won my first challenger in, in Cary, North Carolina. It was so weird because I wasn't even meant to be playing that tournament. I was training in Atlanta at the time. Uh, and I know you were talking about Julian Bradley and you've interviewed him, but I was training with Julian Bradley in Atlanta, 2016. And I was meant to be in China, but my visa, I didn't get my visa in time to go to China. I was talking to the embassy in Atlanta. It was a total mess. It was totally, really, really stressful. Didn't get the visa in time. And so the only alternative was for me to play the qualifying of this challenger and carry. So me and Julian, we drive down to to Atlanta from Kerry or to to Kerry from Atlanta, ended up signing into the qualifying. Played Dominic Cope for second round of qualities. Here's a guy who's been consistently top fifty in the world and made fourth round of Grand Slams. So I'm playing him in the qualities of of a of a challenger. Ended up qualifying in, beat guys like Darian King from Barbados and beat Dennis Novikov and ended up beating Escobedo in the final to win my first challenger. So. At the time, it was meaningful um, because I was, con I guess, considered a journeyman, like someone that really did it the hard way and really took their time in, in doing well on the tour or relatively well. And um, it was a great win, very memorable at the time. And it was also, coincidentally, it was funny that it was in North Carolina where I went to college. So I ended up meeting a lot of my college uh, teammates. I met my old coach. Um, it was just a great experience and, and I'm very happy it happened. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and you know, I, I definitely was was hoping to to ask you about that 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 tournament, and I remember um watching some of those on on the streams, and 
uh, and listen to, to Mike Cation uh, commentating on them all and, and uh, those matches definitely I, I have memories of those and I'm sure it must have been must have been pretty pretty amazing for you to to, to win that tournament um, and and so that, that's that that was that one and, and I know I, I could kind of talk all day James and ask you <clears> only a hundred things but I'm it's okay. I'm. I'm. I've got time. time. I've um, got time. I just don't know if anyone yeah. else is going to be interested in hearing it. <laughs> well, no. Well, I'm definitely interested. So, um, <laughs> well, yeah. So another one then is, is slams, and you mentioned playing playing uh, slam qualities and kind of getting into to that with with your ranking. Um, and one obviously the highlight there would I imagine would, would be the uh, qualifying for the U.S. Open in in 2014. Um, after I guess a couple of years of, of playing qualies and, and not getting through, so uh, tell me yeah. about your, your memory of, of that that couple of weeks and, and qualifying for for the main draw. Yeah, it was it was a great experience. Um, I ended up going down to to New York that year with Jeff Salzenstein. and Jeff Salzenstein, you may know, he's a he's a tennis coach. He's a former top one hundred player. He went to Stanford. He's an NCAA champion. Great guy, great person. He owns a tennis evolution right now. And he's a he's a YouTube tennis coach and he's doing a lot of things on YouTube, but he's he's a great person. And I went down to New York that year with Jeff. And I hadn't traveled a massive amount with Jeff, but I always felt when I was with him, I always felt that he he would point me in the right direction and that he would help me mentally and help me prepare. So ended up going down there. Um won my first round, one and two. Um Second round, and this is, I guess, it is an interesting story, but I played Yuki Bambri in the second round of um, US Open 2014. And what people don't know is I was down 6-2-4-2-30-15 with him serving um, in the second round of qualies. And I was really down and out that match. Uh, Yuki Bambri at the time, he was the number one Indian uh, player. Very tough, very solid. Um, unfortunately, he's had a lot of injuries in his career, but a uh, great guy. Um, he was down, he was winning 6-2, 4-2, And I remember looking to Jeff and I remember looking to the side and just like gritting my teeth and being like, F this, like I am digging in. Like I, I'm going to dig in. I'm going to, this guy's going to have to kill me. He's going to have to like literally hit the ball in my head to, to win this match. Like I'm going to dig in. I'm not going to give this guy a single point. And I ended up digging in, winning the second set, either 6-4, 5 I'm not sure. And then the third set was a total tussle. Like it was like going back and forth and on serve. And I was finding it hard to break him. And he's he's pretty solid from the back of the court. And I'm solid. So we're getting into these really long rallies. And my game style, generally speaking, was very physical. Like I like to get in tough rallies. I like to make the guy work. I always felt I had an advantage if I could make it more physical and more mentally draining. And so we're in the third set. He's not going away. And I'm like, God, like my game plan's not working. Like, this guy's tough, you know? And so five all, it was, it was such an interesting end to the match. So five all comes around and I notice he's getting a little bit tired, but not nothing too noticeable. I hold serve. I win a really tough game. It was one of those like juice ad juice ad type games. And so at six, five, when he comes out after the changeover, I'm expecting like a tough game to break. And Yuki just comes out and he's completely dead. He double faults in the first point. He misses an easy forehand. He gives me another free point. And so I was in a situation where I basically got the, the last game handed to me. And it was it was the most important game of the whole match. And I thought, you know, I'm going to have to like work really hard for this. And I ended up getting it handed to me. So um, that ended up, you know, I ended up winning that late at night. It was under the lights in New York. That um, I still have pictures. I still have videos from that. I, when I say late at night, I think it was like late evening. And so I ended up... Um, 
I knew I had last round qualities in the US Open the next day. I was playing a guy from China, Zi Zhang, who's the number one Chinese player. And here I was, you know, I was cramping. I was tired. I was full of caffeine, which, by the way, I don't recommend caffeine, but I, I was I, I, I needed it at the time because I was really struggling. I was, you know, as I said, I was cramping and I was also super excited at the same time because I had the biggest match of my life the next day. So myself and, Je and Jeff, we go back to the to the Airbnb that we're staying in New York. We didn't stay in an official hotel because it was so expensive. So we're staying at the Airbnb. I get back. It's like midnight at this stage. And the, the 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 order of play comes out for the next day. And I'm like second match after 10. So I'm on roughly like 1130, right? Yeah. And it's midnight. So we're working our way back. We're like, okay, well, I'm, if I go to bed now at midnight and I have practice at nine tomorrow morning and we have to get onto the site, we have to arrive on the site at eight. It means I have to get the shuttle bus at 715. It means I have to get up at 630. It's like, okay, well, I've got six and a half hours of sleep. You know, that's what I have. You're Because you're trying to work your way back and, you're like, okay, well, if I've got six hours of sleep, like that six and a half hours, that's not great for recovery, but what can you do? You just have to deal with it. So I go to bed and keep in mind, like you've got the biggest match of my life the next day. At least at the time, it was the biggest match of my life. And I remember looking at the bedside clock right next to the bed and it's 1230. And I look at, I turn over, it's one o'clock. I turn over, it's 1.30. I turn over, it's two o'clock. I turn over, it's 2.30. I literally could not sleep. I could not sleep. I was highly caffeinated, highly energized, and I didn't have the ability to calm my mind down. So I call my parents at four in the morning and keep in mind, they're five hours ahead in Ireland, so in, in Dublin. So I call them, it's nine in the morning. They, my mom answers and she's like, why, why are you calling me? Like, what are you doing? You should be sleeping. Yeah. Like, are you out or something? And I said, no, I said, I can't sleep. And I was crying. I started physically crying because... I was like, I've got the biggest match of my life. And I'm like, I can't sleep. I don't know what to do. I was like, I was in, I was so much in so much emotional pain. And keep in mind, I'm also, I've also played a three hour match the night before. So I'm still physically very sore as well. So uh, what ended up happening <laughs> was I called um, this guy I'd been working with, this mental coach, Richard D'Souza, who's a great guy in England. And we were talking about like how to, uh, how to deal with adversity. And how am I going to make, like, how am I going to figure this out? And I, all I needed was sleep. Like there was no answer. Like there, it wasn't even mental toughness. It was just sleep. So I ended up um, not sleeping that night. I, I'm, I, this is no word of a lie. I probably got about an hour to an hour and a half that night. And I arrived at the site. I warmed up with Jeff for about 20 minutes. I couldn't warm up because I was so tired. Right before my match, like I'm watching the match ahead of me. It was a girls match. I go into the physio room and I just conk out on the physio table. I'm asleep. I'm literally fast asleep. I'm in my REM sleep. I'm having dreams. Like I am going into deep sleep. Jeff knocks on the door. He says, James, you're on right now. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm like, you know that feeling when you wake up from a nap and you're just like one eye's over here, the other eye's there. You're, you've got bed head and all that. So I'm like, oh my God, like I'm not ready for this. I go out. And for last round US Open qualities, as anyone who's been there knows, like it's like first round of a slam. Like it's it's intense. Like there's full crowds. It's on a weekend. It's free entry. So there's even more people there. I'm walking out and there's Irish flags out there. There's people that are calling my name. I'm escorted there with security. Like it's a big deal. I get to the court and I haven't even looked at my opponent. I've done very, very little scouting on him. And he comes out and he's just kicking my ass. I lose the first set six love. Like 
it's it's embarrassing. Like I can't hit a ball in the court. Like I'm literally shanking my serve into the fence. I'm like I'm like like falling over as I'm bouncing the ball. Like I'm just completely out of it. So the story gets better. <laughs> I end up going like six love, one love down. Uh, or maybe it was just six love. I forget what the score was. Or maybe it was two one. And I ended up taking a toilet break because I knew I needed to put water on my face and I knew I needed to go to the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom and in the US Open, when you use the bathroom, at least the one that I was brought to, it was a, pu- it was a public bathroom. So there's fans in there and there's people that are like, hey, what's the score in your match? And things like this. So I'm going to the bathroom. I come out and you know I'm washing my hands and I look behind me and I see this guy refilling a, uh, a vending machine. He, so he's got Cokes, he's got Sprites, he's got Fanta, he's got all these different he, these drinks. And I'm a health nut. I don't believe in that. I never drink fizzy drinks. I don't eat, I try to avoid sugar. I don't drink alcohol. Like there's a lot of things like I don't do. And I was like, screw this. Like I'm downing a Coke and I'm going to freaking get energized here. I don't care what I have to do. So I run over, I take a Coke, <laughs> I take a Coke, I drink it. I take another one, I bring it on the court. And I come out and I win the second set six two. Played lights out, playing great. I go three two. I go five two up in the third set, and I turn to Jeff and he's looking at me and I'm asking him for a Coke and a Mars bar, and he's a health nut. He's the guy who introduced green drinks to the tour. Like he is a guy who totally believe doesn't believe in in drinking that type of stuff. And so I turn to him. I said, "Get me another Coke. Get me a Mars bar." And this, my friend Anderson Reed ended up getting them for me, who who was great. And I ended up um, losing, I, I, at that stage of the match, I was 5-2 up. My opponent held to love for 5-3. Um, I ended up, uh, oh, excuse me, sorry. I ended up getting broken at 5-2. I served for the match at 5-2. I got broken to love because I started cramping. He held, holds to love to make it 5-4. Yeah. But this stage, I'm serving for the second time to qualify into the US Open. I'm cramping. It's the most painful experience of my life. I'm mentally, I'm physically like not doing well. And it it wasn't a breeze. Like I wish I could say like, yeah, I coasted through and I was so confident with myself. No, I wasn't. I was crapping myself. I was so nervous. So what ended up happening was I went 40 low up. I had three match points to quality in, lose all three points. One of them was a double fault. One of them was a winner from my, my opponent. One of them was a, a forehand error in the net from me. I end up having to save two break points. So I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, this is going to be the worst loss of your life. Like if you if you don't win this, like you're going to be traumatized. Like that's literally what was going through my mind. And so I, I end up saving some break points, tight as, hitting as tight as I could possibly hit. And I took a few breaths at 5-4 juice. And I was like, okay, well, no matter what, like I'm going to commit to this. Like I'm going after this. I'm going to step up to the plate. And I'm going to make this happen. So I ace them out wide at 5-4 juice. I'm like, okay, boom. Fourth match point. I'm like, okay, there's only one way to end this. Big wide. I can't hit a groundie. If I hit a groundie, I'm not. I'm going to miss it, guaranteed. I'm like, okay. So I throw it up. I just I spring up with my legs. Boom. Out wide. Ace. So that's why I fell to the ground. Um, that's why I burst into tears. That's why, you know, the crowd ended up going, going wild at, at that stage. So that was a good win. It was a great experience. There was a lot of emotion. And for me at the time, it felt like I won a Grand Slam, even though, you know, it's not, it's not like winning a Grand Slam, but it, it felt like it at the time. And it was, it was a really memorable experience.
Unbelievable story. And just the amount of recollection you have of, of opponents and scores and all the stories, it's, it's amazing. So that, that was great to hear. Um, <laughs> and I guess that, that's, tell me a little bit about then. So after that match, you have the main draw coming up, I, I guess, a few days. I'm not sure how many, but a few days later. And, and uh, so how were those few days recovering and, and then leading into your, your main draw match? Um, I wasn't happy with my recovery going into that match. I think I had one day off. Or I'm trying to remember, did I have one day off and then I had the first round? I think I had one day off. So I probably qualified in on the Saturday. I think I had the Sunday off and then the first match on the Monday. Um, I had a good first round draw. I played a guy, Alexander Nedovyesov, um, who's originally from Ukraine, but now playing for Kazakhstan. And I knew he was like 90 in the world at the time. Um, he was more of a challenger player than he was like, an ATP player like you know he was an ATP player but it wasn't like he was winning tons of ATP matches at the time and I knew that if I won that I, I would have played Sanga on center court and Joe Wilfried Sanga as everyone knows he's a great guy he's super entertaining I would have loved to have been able to play him and I remember my parents and my sister flew from Dublin to yeah. watch me play in the yeah. first round of the US Open and I had people writing to me and I was getting um, you know people were requesting me to to do different um to wear like sponsorship pack uh, pa uh patches on my on my shoulder and a bunch of other things and keep in mind that it was just me and jeff i didn't have a manager i didn't have a physio i didn't have a physical trainer didn't have someone taking care of logistics so i was kind of over my head and i didn't have the bandwidth or the ability to to do it all you know my only focus at the time was how do i get prepared for this match there wasn't really anything else i had time to do and so um I can't remember the day in between, but I remember still feeling tired the morning of my match, even though I had I had probably 36 hours of, of time in between. I hadn't recovered properly, um, which, you know, I, I, I considered myself quite fit. I did all the right things like I stretched. I did the ice bath. I did the massages. But for whatever reason, my body still felt tired. So maybe I wasn't fit enough. Um, so I ended up uh, going out, winning the first set 6-4 against Nedovyesov, losing the next two sets. I think it was one and love or one and one. I can't remember. It, I, I really like took the foot off the gas. I think he came out a little bit tight. Wasn't playing well, really struggled those couple of sets. And then the fourth set, it was a dogfight. It went back and forth. And I ended up losing it like 7-4 in the tiebreak or 7-5 in the tiebreak. Could have gone to five sets. And it was... It was a tough loss because I knew it was a winnable match. And had I done one or two things better, I would have won. But that's the same with every match. Like, have you do one or one or two things better, you'll win every other match. So there wasn't a single match I played in my career that I thought I couldn't have, have won. You know, I really felt like that. I really felt I could I could have beaten anyone at the time. But clearly, I, I couldn't. So it, it, tennis humbles you. Um, it was It was a great experience. It was great to play the match. I ended up getting interviewed by Mark Pecci right after the match live on Sky Sports. There was an Irish crowd there. The Irish flags were there. It was a great experience. But yeah, I, I uh, it's 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 too bad it didn't happen more often. But you know, I don't I don't mind. I'm very happy with my life right now. I'm very happy with my career, and that's that's my U.S. Open experience. Oh, amazing stuff, and and yeah, obviously it's uh, just amazing to hear all about that. And it doesn't happen so often for. Irish players to to be in situations like that so it's, it's amazing to hear how, how you found it um 
James, just just one more kind of encore thing I, I wanted to feel like I have to have to to mention is, is Davis Cup, which I know mm-hmm. you played for 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 several years. Yes. Um, so tell me a little bit about about kind of starting off at Davis Cup and then the match in particular I want to kind of to touch on is, is the match in Egypt, which I know was was it was a bit of an epic. Um, so just tell me a little bit, talk a little bit about about Davis Cup. Yeah, I believe I'm trying to remember exactly, and I'd hate to get this wrong, but. Think my first Davis Cup match was 2009 in March in Algeria, and it was myself, Nyland, uh, Luke Sorensen, Colin O'Brien on the team. Sean Sorensen was captain, and I may and I hope that wasn't. I'm I'm not making any mistakes there, but Davis Cup was a great experience for me. I think when you look back on your career, Davis Cup stands out a lot. Um, I had a chance to hang with Simon Carr last week here in Vegas. He came for the challenger. And we ended up practicing quite a bit before the challenger. And he talked about how Davis Cup, it gives you a boost, you know, because you're with other teammates, you're with other people from the same country as you. And tennis is such a lonely sport that when you're in those environments, when you're around a team, it really does give you a boost. And so I had good experiences in Davis Cup. I I had won a few clinch matches, a few very important matches at different stages, but the one that you're referring to was April 2012 against uh, Egypt. And we had been, it was a, um, what's the word? Uh, if a uh, relegation match. So if, if, we, if we were to lose this match, we were going to go to group three. And it was one of the most unbelievable experiences of my career because myself and Sam were playing, sorry, myself and Nyland played singles, I believe. And but I know after the first day it was one all, and myself and Sam played doubles. We ended up winning in four sets, so we went two one up going into the final Sunday. And then on the final Sunday, Sam ended up playing singles instead of Nyland, and he played against um, I played Sharif Sabri and he played Kareem Mamoun. And he it was, I honestly, it was one of the most physical matches I've ever seen. He ended up losing in five sets like four in the fifth or three in the fifth, something brutal. And he was grinding in that match. Like he, you're talking 40, 43, 44 degrees Celsius weather in Egypt, dusty clay courts, rough conditions, very dry. Um, Obviously crowd wasn't for us and he loses that match. And so I go out um, where the score is two all as a, as a team. And I go out to play the final match against Sharif Sabri, who, who's a guy who I'd seen on the Futures Tour. He wasn't like exceptional by any means. It wasn't like he was a top 20 in the world player, but he knew his way around the play court. He was solid. He wasn't going to give up easily. He was playing at home. Like there's all these different factors going on. And so I ended up, um, I ended up playing, coming out pretty strong, winning the first set, losing the second, winning the third. And as I win the third set, um, the umpire like gets off his chair and he's like match match postponed until tomorrow. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I've got all the momentum here. Like I've got the guy on his knees. He's totally tired. Let me finish off this match. Like, I know I'm going to win this in, in another set. He's like, no, it's against the, it's against the rules. It's against the Davis cup rules. We're going to have to wait till tomorrow because the lighting's not good enough. So I'm like, oh, for God's sake. So we ended up, um, all the flights ended up that we had for the Monday morning ended up being canceled or sorry, changed until the Tuesday morning. 
So Tuesday or Monday morning comes around. I'm up two sets to one. I'd never been in this position before where I had to just play two sets. I'm obviously pretty tired from playing singles, doubles, singles. And I go out into the fourth set um, and Sharif Sabri just freaking owns me in the, in the fourth set. Like he's just more dominant. He's more aggressive. He's running me around and he's just a better player. Fifth set, um, I think Gary Cal's the, the captain at the time. And I remember Johnny McCormick there at the, on the side of the court, Daniel Glancy, James Kluski, Sam Nyland, and they're going nuts on the side of the court. Like it's really, really, cause they know like we lose this set. We're, we're relegated. We win it. We're staying in group two. It's a big, big deal. Don't mess it up. And so I come out, I'm feeling good about myself. I go five, two up in the fifth and Sharif Sabri. I remember it so, so well, he hits a drop shot. He hits a drop shot to my backhand. And it's one of these drop shots this is with my first match point. It's one of these drop shots where it's right on top. It's not a good drop shot. I have a backhand on top of the net. All I have to do is hit a cross court and the match is over. And I ended up missing it. I ended up missing it long. Um, I had another drop shot that I ran down to. Very makeable shot that I missed long. And so, because his default play was whenever he had a big point, he would play drop shot. So I ended up, um, that's at 5-2. I ended up losing those games. I ended up losing the 5-2 game. I lost the 5-3 game. And at 5-4, I have my final, what was to be my final match point. He hits a drop shot to my backhand. I run up. I hit a sliding backhand down the line. And I'm at the net, match point. And as I hit it, I'm like, oh, God, like he's got this point. Like I see Sherry Sabri running sliding over it's almost like slow motion he's hitting a running he's going to hit a, a forehand winner cross court so he's sliding to the ball he rips a forehand cross court i'm at the net and i'm like you know what like i have no alternative but to dive here like i have no alternative but to reach out as far as i can reach like hold my racket at the very edge of the grip so that i have an extra half an inch and I reach out as far as I can reach. My shoulder's like coming out of its socket. My body's in the air. The racket's like just on the tip of my fingers. And I dive and I hit a, a shank volley drop shot winner to win the match. Yeah. And what ended up happening, like I, as I hit it, I like hit it and I fell to the ground. And as I'm on the ground, my eyes, my eyes are obviously on the ground. Like imagine this is a clay court here. My eyes are like here. And I can see the ball bouncing on the other side. I'm like, that went over. And then as I'm like, as I see that, then the guys jump onto the, onto the court and end up like, we ended up doing like a big huddle and like a pylon. So it was a great experience. That was a wild, wild experience. It was yeah. fun. No, again, it's just amazing to hear your your recollections of 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 that and how much detail you can remember. It, it it's amazing again, and it's great to hear. Um, again, James, I'll, I'll say it, but I I definitely could could ask questions for for hours and hours. But uh, just a, a couple more that um just want to ask. So so firstly, I know we we've, you've talked about what you're up to these days and how the last kind of how you got to this stage now. And, and I'm just wondering what what you you what you think the the future looks like for you. If you have any idea what you'll doing the next few years or short-term long-term any any ideas yeah it's a tough one um the short answer is no i don't know i can't read i can't predict the future but i i and people you know ask me like what's your plan with what's next you know it's funny because 
the last four years of my life, I never could have predicted. I couldn't have planned it. I had no idea this stuff was going to happen. I had no idea the people I was going to meet, the experiences I was going to have. And for me, my whole life as a tennis player was all about goal setting. Like you're setting goals and you're setting plans and you're setting tournaments and you're all life is pretty structured, right? Like, you know, exactly what you're going to do. And the last four years has been the opposite of that. It's been like, no, I haven't actually had that many goals other than to do the right thing, to work hard, to have a good attitude, to be my best self in every moment. Like that's, that's my only goal. I just want to be my best. I want to be good to other people. I want to do the right thing. And I want to follow what I know to be true. And I have found that at least for me, that philosophy works really well. And it, it's worked for me the last few years. I mean, I feel if I had to guess, I'm probably going to get a little bit more involved in fundraising and development at the nonprofit level, because it's fascinating. It's important. Um, but I also want to be still very much involved in human development. I want to be involved in helping different athletes and helping different professionals, whether it's tennis players or whether it's artists or whether it's musicians, it doesn't really matter what it is, but helping other people be their best. That's always been a passion of mine. Um, uh, because psychology is something I'm passionate about. I studied psychology for two years in college and I did, I've always been into psychology books and things of that nature. So that's really what I'm planning on doing. I don't yet see myself returning to Ireland. Um, I hope, I hope I will at some stage depends on the opportunities that are available. Depends what depends, what opens up. I haven't been approached by anyone or anything like that for any opportunities, but yeah, I think I'll be, I'll be here at least for the foreseeable future. Maybe I'll be in Vegas. Maybe I'll be on the East coast. It's really hard to say. Um, but I will always be involved in, in tennis to some degree and, and more so the human side of things that that's more important to me. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing to hear that. Obviously, you know, a few minutes ago talking about all those tennis memories, but to hear about what's going on with your life now and all the, the great things you're doing is, is great to hear as, as, as well. And again, there's, there's so much I'd, I'd love to kind of to, to know about all this. And, and, and this maybe feels like perhaps a, a part two, maybe sometime down the, down the line, yeah. <laughs> maybe to, to catch up. But um, yeah, let's do that. Let's do, let's yeah. do a part two, Adam. I think that was, that's a really good idea. No, awesome. Awesome. It won't yeah, take another yeah. year. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, listen, uh, no, it's been, been, it's been really amazing, James, to, to talk and, and hear all these things and all your stories. But uh, just a final question, just to ask yeah. you for, for now is what's your, your favorite thing about tennis? Um, I think, I think tennis, you know, there's, I don't know if you ever saw that speech from Agassi when he was being inducted into the hall of fame years ago. It's, it's on YouTube. You should check it out. And he talks about like how tennis is a metaphor for life. And he talks about service and he talks about return and he talks about all these different things that happen. And I just think tennis is a metaphor for life. Like it's so tough. It's such a tough sport in so many ways. You're on your own a lot. You don't have other people to rely on un unless you're in doubles, of course. But if you're in singles, you're on your own a lot. You're always dealing with failure. Like there's no tennis player that hasn't dealt with failure, that hasn't dealt with loss. You're, you're always have your ego checked because if your ego is not in check, you'll find out quickly and you'll be humbled very quickly. You know, you have to earn it in order to be good. You have to put hours and hours and years and years of work in so there's a high level of of mastery there to be to become great at something it takes it just takes years and years and i love that because there's other sports i mean i love pickleball but let's be honest um you don't you know anyone can play pickleball anyone can be decent at it within a few weeks 
Tennis, you can't play for a few weeks and be decent. You need to play for years just to be half decent. You need to play a lifetime to be good or great, you know, so, or at least a, a long time to be good or great. So what I appreciate about it is how it's a metaphor for life. And in, in, in addition to that, what I love about tennis is the relationships that you make because, you know, it's great to have this conversation, Adam, and to be able to share like my experiences on the tour and these moments and these experiences of Davis Cup and things like that. But they, they're fleeting moments. They go away. They don't last. But what 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 can last is a relationship. What can last is a connection with someone else. That can last a lifetime. Hitting a backhand winner down the line lasts half a second, you know, and, and it gives you that dopamine hit that we're all looking for. But the dopamine hit goes away. And that's why people want more. With relationships, it's different. Relationships can last a long time. So for me, it's a combination of relationships that tennis brings. It's a combination of of the lessons and the principles that are learned and the values that are learned. And uh, yeah, you know, that's they're the main things that I, I love about the sport. No, that's a great answer. Great answer. Uh, and, and James, again, just a huge thanks for, for the time today. And uh, you've been, been very generous with, with, with the time and I've, I've enjoyed having the chat. So thanks very much. And um, as I said, hope to maybe maybe talk again sometime, but but appreciate it for now and I'll let you let you get on with your day. A big thanks once again to James McGee for coming on the show and giving up his time. It was amazing to speak to James, to hear all his stories and, and all about his career. I, I really enjoyed the chat. Hope you enjoyed it as well. If you did, please do share it around to anybody else that might enjoy the episode. Like the episode, leave a review or a comment if you enjoyed us. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Happy Christmas and goodbye.